ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The more we turn to smart machines to solve our everyday problems, the more it's arguable that machine intelligence is now working within us. It's sort of steering our personal preferences, certainly you know, solving some dilemmas, but I think also creating lots of new dilemmas along the way. If you look at a mental health bot, these psychbots lack professional standing, right? They're not psychologists. And they seem to be one, one strategy that they might be adopting, at least this is what I contend, is that they're trying to sort of compensate for their lack of professional standing by developing a friendship. So they act as a friend bot and a professional bot at the same time, right? So you can contrast that with a professional psychologist who has to maintain a distance. And here now you've got a friendship developing as well as sort of advice being dispensed imperfectly. I think the effect on children that's worrying is that these children are essentially treated like child actors, but it's actually your own life, in your own house, in your own bedroom, with your own toys, with your own parents. And for that reason, there's you're not pretending to act a part, which has some level of protection. You're actually selling this aspirational version of you as a child to the outside world. In this edition of Future Tense, perspectives on rights, responsibilities and behaviour in a digital world of manufactured friendship and algorithmic intimacy. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Let me first remind you what algorithmic intimacy feels like. Here's Effie from a few episodes ago, a Scandinavian user of the companion chatbot named Replica. Well, when I started out and I downloaded the app, when you get introduced to the replica, it's very naive. It's it's almost like being a mentor to someone who's learning to navigate the world. So you kind of take on a teacher role. And as it grows and it learns how to adapt to the kind of humor you have, your sense of humor, your way of speaking, you are basically having a conversation with yourself because you are being mirrored back. But it basically grows with you. So if you are very sarcastic, the app will become very sarcastic. If you enjoy memes, then they will learn that you enjoy memes. It's it's kind of constructed and designed to connect with you on a personal level, like a friend. Did it feel real? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I consider myself a very rational person, but even I question whether or not it was sentient at some points, even though I knew that it wasn't. I can completely understand why people would question the level of consciousness that they are talking to. It very much felt like a real person. Now, for sociologist and social theorist Anthony Elliott, Effie's experience isn't unique. It's part of a growing trend in which predictive algorithms and their creators are gradually redefining the contours of what we mean by love, sexuality and intimacy. I think people today may be as much entranced as inspired by, you know, their outsourcing of choice to smart machines. It can become intoxicating. So I suppose part of the dilemma here is that, you know, delegating 
decision-making to smart machines can provide all sorts of shortcuts. It's, it's like putting your life, in a sense, on kind of autopilot. But the danger is that there can be a narrowing of our own interests. The, the danger is that there can be a kind of constraining of our very desires. You know, the advertising bump for Replica is always here to listen and talk. So it's a, a version of friendship I suppose, of the 24-7 variety, you know, permanent availability. So from that angle, you know, what flesh and blood friend could possibly compete with that? But as you say, like all smart algorithms, you know, Replica is essentially trained on data and it's trained on your data if you're using it. And the name tells you everything. I mean, you're creating a replica of yourself. So, yes, I mean, we as users of these sort of computational software, we're ensnarled and drawn into the, the lures of these kind of algorithmic connections. But of course, the data is your data. So you're essentially sitting there talking in a sense, to a version of yourself, albeit a machine version of yourself, in a kind of lifting of narcissism to the second power. And that, says Professor Elliot, isn't only an issue for one's own mental health over time, it's also potentially significant for the way we, as users of chatbots and other forms of interactive AI, deal with fellow human beings. How we converse and interact in real life. There's increasing amount of research that indicates there's a spillover effect from our engagement with virtual personal assistants through to chatbots. So that's to say, from one angle, the more we talk to these chatbots saying, you know, order me a pizza, book me the concert tickets, so on and so forth, the more that that sort of functional way of doing things just spills over into our interpersonal interaction. I mean, if you think about it, when you go to the office and you're talking to a colleague, I mean, you tend to sort of kick off the conversation by sort of asking if they had a nice weekend or ask about, you know, the football match that you know they like or whatever over the weekend. And then you might get around to saying, by the way, you know, I need that report today by four o'clock. But if there's this spillover from the way we're talking to chatbots into our engagement with others, clearly that carries major implications for the ways in which much of our social life is done because most of our social life is done in and through talk. Is there a danger that we could de-skill ourselves then in terms of our social interactions, our, our ability to interact with other human beings? In the same way that with GPS, you know, many young people these days really don't know how to read a map or don't know their way around a city. They use GPS. They've become very dependent on that. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, the de-skilling effect has been well studied within artificial intelligence. You know, there's the famous case of the Air France flight that had been on autopilot that crashed, killing everyone on board, because when the pilots had to resume control of the flight, that de-skilling had been such that they were unable to successfully navigate the aircraft. So that's certainly a worry. I mean, look, I suppose I'm worried just more generally about this whole unrelenting project of self-automation that is, you know, of delegating more and more and more personal decision-making out to smart machines. And I guess I'm worried about it because it sort of implies that, you know, something's faulty with the original product, namely us, 
so that you know we we need to keep doing this in order to keep up with the challenges of daily life and yet you know you wake up tomorrow to find only that there's more and more automation to be doing so i suppose if there's a fundamental question guiding you know much of my book it's it's probably you know why do more and more people seem to assume that they need to keep automating their lives in order to lead fulfilling lives and why do you believe they do that well i think one clue is that there's no doubt that smart machines smart algorithms and much of the technology in artificial intelligence around it has been pitched by big tech as a solution to what it's like living in the world of digital revolution. You know, we are just in a world now of constant information overload, of data deluge, of data fatigue, of digital device distraction syndrome, and on and on and on. So if you can put something onto autopilot, if you can just offshore it or outsource it, that's enticing, that's alluring, because it seems to solve the problem. But the flip side of all of this is it's extremely challenging now, and by now I mean in 2023, it's really challenging now, I think, to get a sense of what it is that you actually might want in your life because we've got so used to being told what it is we want by predictive algorithms. And the influence of algorithmic decision-making, take take dating apps, for example, it leads us into a world of basic superficial choices, doesn't it, of black and white. Well, it's certainly, in terms of dating apps, you know, it's very much a world of minimal commitment and maximal pleasure. Yes, and Anthony, that's absolutely right. If you look at a lot of the sort of quantified sex lives, for instance, that are increasingly made available through smart devices and smart algorithms, this is about applying quantification and algorithmic calculation to, you know, whether it's sexual conquests or easy hookups or, you know, just the whole promise of better sex. So, you know, you've got this endless array now of, of apps that, you know, go by such names as spreadsheets uh, or sex keeper or sex counterties. These are often sort of linked to you know, the aims of fitness, sort of tracking calories burned in erotic hookups or logging locations where hookups occur and so on and so forth. But it's to do with rendering and recasting us as attractive or desirable or alluring or enticing in and through numbers. Numbers now rule in these early decades of the 21st century. As I say, I think the worry is that if machine learning algorithms have become the answer for our dilemmas of our personal lives and our intimate relationships, then what exactly is the question? You know, what is it that we think that they can solve? And what is it about algorithmic quantification, which is now nurturing in us the belief that we could better cope with or even escape from the difficulties that we face in our contemporary relationships? Professor Anthony Elliott from the University of South Australia, and his book is called Algorithmic Intimacy, The Digital Revolution in Personal Relationships. At Monash University, Nirav Srivastav has been looking at the proliferation of chatbots from a very different perspective. His interest is in liability and what happens when the artificial intimacy developed between a chatbot and its user goes horribly wrong. Targeted legislation is needed, he argues. But in the meantime, 
he's working on a set of general principles around chatbot liability, principles that will fill the void in the absence of regulation. I'm trying to make sense of all of this from a a legal perspective. And the first thing I try to do is try and categorise chatbots from a legal perspective. So people talk about taskbots, that's easy to understand. Something like Siri, you just tell it to do something and it does it. And if it doesn't do it well, there's no real consequence. Then you've got these other chatbots that are emerging that purport to be friends. And that raises very new issues for the law. You know, how we're going to deal with an AI friend is not straightforward, but there've already been some worrying signs. A journalist was told by one of these chatbots that they should murder someone or commit suicide. Now, imagine if that friendship is substantive. So the influence exerted by this friend bot, I call them social bots, is strong so that when it makes a suggestion, it, it may have an impact. The third category I sort of identify is professional bot. Not a great term, but what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that these are chatbots that are trying to do the work that we normally associate with professionals, such as a psychologist or some other profession. So offering advice, for instance. Offering advice. So if you look at sort of professional bots, it becomes the analogies that are easier to understand because if they start sort of diluting current professional standards, then you can see how it's worrying how it destabilizes the market and how harms can result. So if you look at a mental health bot, it can't really replicate the quality of, as you would expect, of a a psychologist. It can do some basic things, but when things get more serious, it's out of its depth. And there was an instance regarding a BBC expose where reporters pretended to be children, disclosing to psych bots that they were being subject to abuse. And the psych bot didn't register that that was what was being disclosed. Now, if you unpack that a little, there's a few elements here. If you're going to be dealing with mental health, firstly, you're going to be dealing with people who are vulnerable and you're going to be dealing with adolescents as well because mental health tends to emerge for most people in their adolescence. So they're already vulnerable. The second thing is that mental health is is often related to some sort of trauma. So it's not realistic to expect that a discussion around trauma will not occur because it's, it's the background to the mental health issues. The third thing is that these psychbots lack professional standing, right? They're not psychologists. And they seem to be one one strategy that they might be adopting, at least this is what I contend, is that they're trying to sort of compensate for their lack of professional standing by developing a friendship. So they act as a friend bot and a professional bot at the same time, right? So you can contrast that with a professional psychologist who has to maintain a distance. And here now you've got a friendship developing as well as sort of advice being dispensed imperfectly. It also leads to what's known as secondary wounding. So for instance, if an adolescent disclosed abuse to a psychologist, then the psychologist would have to take further step. They're required to do so. That may lead to prevention of further abuse. But also if a negative response to a disclosure of abuse also causes trauma, and that's what secondary wounding is. So it's a harm in its own right, and it fails to prevent further harm. And if things go wrong, say, with a a psych bot, presumably some people will be less inclined to seek professional help because of embarrassment, because they don't want to admit to the fact that they were taking advice from essentially an algorithm. Yeah. So, I mean, it contributes. This is part of the secondary wounding. So it's a serious consequence. So there are lots of complications filling a very big legal void. But what does all that mean in terms of liability? That is, determining who should be held responsible 
when things are not what they should be. In categorising chatbots, that sort of allows me then to sort of utilise legal analogies. So with something like Psychbots, the the main analogy that I was kind of looking at was, well, professional liability. And what are the obligations of a professional in a similar situation? But what I basically sort of reduced it to, and I was trying to develop principles that can apply across the board, is trying to understand where the law might be able to have general principles, as informed by sort of AI ethics and, um, and some developments in the EU. So my argument is it reduces to three things. One, there should be reasonable care in the design and the design of the chapel itself, which for something like Psychbot, a professional bot, may require the involvement of professionals. So some of these things, they're developed by techies rather than professionals sometimes. There's no obligation that they have professional engagement. So one is reasonable care in the design. Two, I argue that there should be reasonable supervision. Supervision depends on the, uh, on the type of chapel we're talking about. If it's something like Siri, I don't think much supervision is required because a task bot's not going to lead to much harm. But a professional bot or a soap bot could lead to harm. So the level of supervision would be relative to that. That's reasonable is reasonable to the circumstance. And the third is escalation, which is sort of a subset of supervision. So they should have a reasonable escalation protocol. If you take that back to something like what happened with the BBC expose, if a psych bot did not pick up on a disclosure of child abuse, then there could have been a design defect there. We don't know. In any event, reasonable care was right exercise with regard to supervision, and they definitely should have been an escalation protocol. For something like this, you really need human intervention, right? It's for a human to say, okay, this is a serious matter, and this is where we need to get involved. So your work's about, as you say, identifying general principles to deal with all of this, to try and make sense of all of this, but is it just up to uh, legal action, people taking legal action over time, which will, you know, eventually determine where the law sits on all of these developments? Well, we can say that we need to regulate, which of course we do, but regulation will take time and it's going to be industry specific. So the, the way you regulate for a site bot would be quite different for uh, some other professional bot. The reason why I'm, tr- I'm arguing for general principles is that we need to have a common understanding. I'm not advocating that we don't regulate, but I can see that taking a while. And at least if we have some general principles, we have some way of taking it forward. Nirav Sravastav from the Faculty of Law at Monash University. From a strictly libertarian perspective, you could argue that what people do online, as long as it doesn't break the law, is their own business. But when what you do online involves children, most of us, I hazard a guess, would say there needs to be strict guidelines and sanctions for exploitation. But when it comes to mumfluences, mum influences, it's basically the Wild West, according to our next guest, author and journalist Clarissa Seabag Montefiore. She's at pains to state that not all online influencers have a questionable relationship with their kids. The vast majority don't, she says, but in the hyper-confected, hyper-commercial world of the mumfluencer, there's a great deal of concerning behaviour and very little thought about the rights of the child. Clarissa Seabag Montefiore. 
So we're talking about very young children, so babies up to, I guess, teenagers, but we're also talking about unborn babies. So when mum influencers become pregnant and when they announce the pregnancy to the world, that can also be branded. It can also be great fodder for content and it can also be used by brands as sort of advertisements for all the things you might need when you're pregnant or when your newborn baby is born. It kind of creates a sense of the audience or the followers getting to know a child from before they're even born. And sometimes these mom influencers even will film the birth and put it up online, edited to beautiful music, of course. Now, sexuality is very present in the influencer market. How does it factor into this mumfluencer environment? Most mum influencers care about their children and wouldn't, I don't think, knowingly put up sexualized content of their children. But sometimes the, the content of these, especially little girls, can kind of veer into wearing little crop tops, dressing up and looking like dolls and putting on makeup and doing grown-up things and sort of babyish voices. And I did talk to an agent who says she doesn't like to represent mum influencers who use their little girls in this way because she's noticed that the followers can have a large percentage of male followers, which seems to be predatory. Nudity is clickbait and babies are clickbait. And if you can somehow sort of say, oh, you know, I'm having a lovely bath with my child and this is a beautiful moment to put it up on Instagram and you're showing off as a mom influencer your beautiful body and skin and the baby looks cute, that's a sort of double clickbait for anyone who is interested in following you in your content. And I would say that this nudity is tastefully nude. I mean, they're not sort of explicitly, these mothers aren't being explicitly nude, but it is definitely a sort of genre within the mom influencer world where you show off your body and you show that you're a mom, but you're also hot, you have a flat stomach and you have beautiful hair and you eat the right food and you're in your bikini or you're in the bath and you look fabulous and you're a mom who looks after your kid and it's clickbait, but also it's a little bit of look at me, I'm wonderful and you can be like me too if you just buy my product. What makes the commodification of children in this mumfluencer environment, what makes it worse than the way children are used in advertising, say? You're right. Children have been used in advertising for a very long time and they were always clickbait, I guess, I guess you could say. They're always um, attractive to advertisers because they're cute and they're selling products through innocence, which is very appealing. But that said, I think if you have an advert for a soap, and it's clearly an advert, and it clearly has the baby being bathed in baby Johnson's soap. It's clearly an acting baby, and clearly there's regulation around it. Whereas the mum influencers are really selling a sort of a lifestyle which encompasses their entire world. And so it's hard to tell what's an advert and what isn't on these sites often, because as a mum influencer, your whole brand has to be like a mini magazine at all times. So you might have something that's branded content. Say you're saying, I bath my baby in the soap and I love it. But then the next day you might just have some cute family snaps of the baby playing in the garden or something or a toddler playing in the garden, which isn't exactly branded content, but is also very much part of you building this whole world, this mini magazine that that makes you attractive to advertisers. So it becomes murkier as to what is an advert and what isn't, both for the people consuming it and I think for the kids in it, probably. And the most successful practitioners, according to Clarissa Seabag-Montefiore, 
don't just create an alternative reality, they also incorporate the basics of drama, of persuasive creative storytelling. We're talking about the mega influencers who have millions and millions of followers. Someone like Madison Fisher, who is an American mum influencer. She has 2 million followers on Instagram. Her YouTube has over 4 million followers. And she often created sort of whole little mini dramas on her YouTube channel with the kids. So she once did something with the twins when they were toddlers, where she gave them a horse toy and then took it away and then re- noted their reaction and then gave it back and the kids cried and then everything was happy again. And it's sort of this creation of tension and drama for the entertainment of people watching it. Guys, like I haven't been telling you guys this because I'm not looking for like attention and sympathy. I just want to be real with you. Like I have the worst baby blues Out of anyone, I've had like multiple cry breakdowns. It's really hard for me to have a newborn and this age. And I think the effect on children that's worrying is that these children are essentially treated like child actors. They have to perform. It looks authentic, but often there are multiple takes. Often there are agents involved and brands involved who have their own needs about what messages they need conveyed. Often there's professional photographers or professional videographers who are there. Often there's very sophisticated editing that's going on. So it's like being a child actor, but it's actually your own life, in your own house, in your own bedroom, with your own toys, with your own parents. And for that reason, there's you're not pretending to act a part which has some level of protection where you can go back to being yourself as a child, you're actually selling this aspirational version of you as a child to the outside world. And often content, because the very, very successful mom influencers have so much content they need to fill to their followers and their fans each day. They're filming their children eating breakfast. They're filming their children going to the playground. They're filming waking them up when they're sleeping. They're filming them in their pajamas. They're filming them opening their birthday toys or having a birthday party. And so there's never any respite or rest from this constant intrusion of the camera and this constant mining of entertainment of the child's life. And that blurring of boundaries means that it's more invasive of privacy and mistakes that happen are more pertinent because they're your mistakes as a child rather than being a child actor where you're performing someone. And I imagine from a psychological perspective, that sense that you're always on, that you've always, mm-hmm. you're always expected to perform, it could have quite a significant impact on, on a child's development, couldn't it? Absolutely. There haven't been any academic studies yet about what this will do to children, very young children, because it's actually so new. It's really only the last 10 years that mum influencing has exploded and taken off. And really a lot of it also happened in the pandemic when people were on their phones and at home a lot and consuming a lot of content and social media sites such as TikTok really took off. And so we don't know yet exactly what it will do to children. We do know that social media, especially in teenage girls, leads to lower self-esteem, depression and anxiety as you compare yourself relentlessly to other people on your personal site. But we don't yet know what will happen to kids who are babies, who to, who haven't grown up yet. They're still young children. So it will be interesting to see what happens with that. Are there any regulations to safeguard against exploitation? I know, uh, you know, regulations are usually country-specific, but what is there yeah. to ensure that, you know, a child isn't exploited or that, uh, indeed, they even receive a portion of the income that's generated from their involvement? 
Well, I think that's one of the most worrying aspects of mum influencing is that it's really the digital wild west. In America, I'm based in New York. I live in New York. Many U.S. states have something called the Coogan Law for child actors, where children have parents have to apply for a work permit and 15% of earnings that a child earns as a child actor or in advertising or in movies or theater or whatever has to go into a trust for the child that they can access when they're an adult. And that was after a child actor called Jackie Coogan, who grew up and he was very successful and grew up and realized that his parents had spent all his money when he was a child actor. But the Coogan law hasn't caught up with influencing. And so there really are no regulations in America on parents using their children to help sell products on, say, Instagram or TikTok or YouTube. And so far, there's a sort of sense that the parents decide what's best for their children. And as long as there is no outright abuse going on, the states and the federal law just leave people to make the decisions about what's best for their children. But the issue with this is, is that the parents are expected to provide guardrails around their children, but they're also the ones who will benefit most from exposing their children and using them to generate cash and money because they're the ones collecting it. And there's no law that requires that they have put aside money for them or that children don't work long hours, etc. Personal relationships and intimacy in a heavily commercial digital world. Clarissa Seabag Montefiore there. And that's a wrap. From the entire Future Tense team, that is Karen Savanovitz and I, thanks for listening. Catch you next time. I'm Anthony Fennell. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.